I'm curious how many of you parents have this same experience as I have had. Uh, it is the strangest coincidence, the funniest thing. Two kids are fighting. You can hear it escalating in the other room, and uh, eventually it, it breaks and somebody begins to cry. Somebody got punched or kicked or otherwise assaulted. And so you go into the room to assess the situation and uh, attempt to remove the guilty party from the scene of the crime for questioning. Uh, and, and you would think, you would think it would be a 50-50 chance of, of getting the guilty one out. Um, but as you interview them, uh, every single time without fail, it turns out that I have brought the innocent child out of the room. E even if they were the one who did the punching or the kicking, it's the other one who deserved it. It's the other one who had it coming. It's never their fault. It's shocking. Um, the conscience is a funny thing, isn't it? We, we deflect so quickly. Um, we, we put it off. Um, as Beth and I like to summarize uh, our children's words back to them in that situation. So let me, let me understand what you're saying. What you're telling me is that all of your sin is all their fault. And more often than not, the answer comes back, yeah, yeah, you're getting it. You're on the right track. Um, he forced me into it. It's his fault. It wasn't me. Um, the conscience, uh, this, this guilt barometer that we have, Paul talks about it in Romans 2, uh, as being that thing that is at one moment accusing us and the next moment excusing us. That, that sometimes it plays its proper role, helping us feel the guilt that we should bear for wrongdoing, um, but then all of a sudden it flips and begins to use its powers for evil, and, uh, and, it, and it begins to make excuses, at finding guilt in the other person, and, and shifting that blame, and, and we end up uh, deflecting our sin rather than dealing with it. And it seems to me this is um, kind of what's on James's mind as he uh, continues to write uh, this letter. Um, turn with me to the book of James, uh, James chapter 1. Um, if you don't have a Bible on you, there are some in the pews there. We just encourage you to grab one of those. We want you to have God's Word uh, open on your lap. Uh, I have nothing of value. Um, I have nothing to say to you this morning. Um, my only hope, my only wisdom is in this book. And so that's my goal, uh, is to take God's Word uh, and, and make it clear and help us come together and understand it. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible at home or one that you can easily read, um, please take this one. It's our gift to you. Um, we would love for you to have it. Um, but looking at, uh, at James chapter 1, let me just kind of bring us all up to speed on, on what James has said so far. Um, the theme of the book of James is, is this idea of an authentic faith. Um, a faith that is tested and proven, that is genuine, um, not counterfeit or faked. And... Uh, and he began telling us in verse 2 to count it all joy um, when you face trials of various kinds, when you're tested in these different ways, um, because that trial produces steadfastness, and, and steadfastness leads to maturity and, and completion, God's perfecting work in us. Verse 5, he points us to, to God's offer of wisdom that we need to, to endure those trials, and, and, and a wisdom that God freely gives to all who trust in him. Verses 
9 to 11, then he lays out uh, just a prime example of what that testing might look like, uh, something that we all deal with. Um, the poor are tempted to despair uh, as they grieve over not having the things of this world. Uh, the rich are tempted to pride as they uh, find satisfaction resting in the things of this world, uh, where both need to learn to find their identity, their hope, their value in Christ rather on what they, than what they have or don't have. Uh, verse 12 then holds out this glorious reward for those who pass the test. Those who love Christ, remain steadfast through the trial, uh, are promised the crown of life, eternal life, eternal joy. And, and that's where we pick up this morning in verse 13. Um, we're going to look at verses 13 to 18. Uh, James turns uh, to look at this from the other perspective. Those who, who pass this test can receive, can expect this, this glorious reward. And, and here he gives very practical advice to those who, who aren't passing the test with flying colors. Those who are faltering in sin and doubt, um, what should they do? And so let me read uh, verses 13 to 18 uh, for us. James writes, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. When desire and then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Would you join me in prayer as we turn to God's word together? Father, we need you. Lord, um, Help us now, even as we see our own consciences now accusing and now even excusing us. Um, God, help us to feel uh, the weight of your truth. Help us to see our own hearts and our need for you. God, open our eyes to see your word rightly uh, and, uh, and not just to, to know it, but to be transformed by it, to walk in obedience to it. God, that we might leave this place uh, as uh, the first fruits of your creatures for the glory of your name. Uh, Lord, would you be at work now by your spirit through your word. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So James is answering this question. What, what about those who are struggling? What about those who are not passing this test with flying colors? What about those who sin? And there's basically two parts to this answer. Um, the first is uh, verses 12 to 15, fight sin. Fight sin. Um, you, you can't be passive about it. You can't be casual with it. You certainly can't be friendly with it. Um, if you're going to pass this test of, of authentic faith, you must fight sin. And James is somewhat theological here, but, but also very practical. He, he gives us two things that are necessary in this fight against sin, two, two approaches, two necessary weapons for fighting sin. Um, and the first is that we need to own our sin. So if you're keeping score, point one is fight sin, and point one A is own it. This is how we fight sin, own it. 
Look at what he says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. So James is warning about this tendency that we have to excuse ourselves, to pass the buck, um, that that we might find ourselves uh, in one of these tests, under one of these trials, and we might fail and fall into sin. And then rather than fighting against that sin, we're, we're tempted to play the blame game. Sounds familiar. Like every child we've ever tried to discipline. It's not me. It wasn't my fault. It was the other person. It was the circumstance I was in. It was just a a bad day. That's just the way I'm wired. It was the full moon, the barometric pressure, whatever. We always have an excuse. And, And that's from the beginning. Adam and Eve, the very first sin, they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God had told them they must not eat. And then God shows up in the garden and he approaches Adam, whom he had left in charge. And what does Adam say? Anyone know where I'm going? The woman. Wasn't me. No, no, the woman, she did it. She gave me the fruit. I never would have done that, but but she picked it and she gave it to me. It's Eve's fault. but there's actually more to what he says. He doesn't just point at Eve. Um, he immediately slides that guilt back a little further uh, to God himself. It was the woman that you gave me. God, this is your problem that you created. You started this. You put me in this situation. Uh, and, and so my sin, God, this is your fault. Now, we're far more sophisticated and sanctified than Adam. Um, we would never blame God for our sin directly. Um, We're more creative than that. But every excuse we make based on the the situation that we're in, uh, it's shifting the blame off of ourselves, and and it inevitably does um, roll downhill, as we say, and in a roundabout way, we're blaming God. God, you made me like this. God, you put me in this predicament. And so James says, let no one say when he's tempted um, that I'm being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, it's really curious, um, the wording that James uses here, and I think think it helps us get to the bottom of of what he means. Um, The word for tempt there that he uses in this passage is uh, parazo, and uh, it's the same word that he used back in verse 2 and in verse 12 that's translated trial. So it begins um, with, with... Verse 2, saying, count it joy when you face trials, perazzo. Verse 12, then, those who who, um, stood the test, perazzo, he will receive the crown of life. Um, But now we're told that God does not test anyone. So it begs this question, um, what is God's relationship uh, with testing? What is his relationship with these trials and temptations? Um, And so it sounds like something the Lord would do back in verse 2. This is his good work. He, we should count it joy when we face these trials because it's God working through it to bring us to perfection. Um, that's, that's God doing that. Is God then waiting for some outside force to bring the temptation so that he can work? Is he uh, contingent on that? Is he not sovereign over our circumstances? Is, is God, has God lost control when difficult things come because those come to us as tests, as trials? Well, Jesus uses this word uh, at the end of the Lord's Prayer. 
um, that we, uh, he asked, lead us not into parazo, lead us not into temptation, assuming that, that God does have some control here. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted, same word, beyond what you can bear. And so God at least has restraining power over it. Um, Genesis 22, verse 1 specifically says, God tested Abraham in asking him to offer his son. He, he put Abraham to the test. Psalm 26, verse 2, David goes so far as asking the Lord, prove me, O Lord, try me, test my heart and my mind. David is asking God to test him. And so I think as we kind of put this all together, um, it becomes clear there, there is a way in which God does test. God is over these trials and there is a way in which he is not. Um, and, and I think that's why, even though James is using the same word here that most translators um, translate it differently, uh, verses two, to t- 2 and 12, it's typically translated trial or test, and verse 13, they translate it tempt, uh, because one word can have multiple meanings uh, in different circumstances, and I think that's what James is doing here. He's, he's using the same word, but he has a clearly different meaning here. God certainly does test. He is sovereign over the difficulties and trials that come into our lives. But God does not tempt. When that trial um, that is brought to test you, uh, he's sovereign over it. He's doing it. But but it becomes a temptation to sin. Um, When it brings about that desire to sin, that's not from God. The, The trial is from God and the temptation is from you. That's our Thing that we bring in. And so God uh, brings about trials for good purposes. And James says, God does not tempt anyone. So verse 14, he goes on to say, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. That's on you. And so you can see the flow of James's thought. He, he brings these trials, but, but it's your desires that turn them into opportunities to sin. James is saying God will do this. He will bring you into difficult circumstances. We ought to expect it. But that desire to sin, and if you fall into sin, you don't get to say, God, that was your fault. God made me do it. Um, I only sinned because of the trial that God brought me. And know that the first step is that we own it. We recognize this is my own desire that brought about this sin. Proverbs 19.3 warns against this exact thing, um, striking verse. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Isn't that true? Let me read that again. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. It's his folly. It's his sin. It's his bad decisions and poor choices and temptations that have, that have ruined his life that make it painful and difficult and hard at every turn. And then he shakes his fist at God. God, why did you do this to me? Why did you bring me here? Why is my life so hard? The problem's not God. The problem's our sin. Jesus talks about the human heart this way. Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Uh, that's, that's how Jesus sees the human heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 3, there, there's no one righteous, not even one. 
So the first thing in, in fighting sin is we've got to own it. We've, we've got to recognize this desire in ourselves, this corruption in us. My biggest enemy is me. And you'll notice James says nothing about Satan here who is the tempter. He doesn't want to give us another opportunity to say, oh, it wasn't God, it was Satan. No, no, let's leave him out of this for the moment. Satan has nothing with, without your sinful desires. So the biggest problem in my marriage is me. The biggest problem in my fight against lust is me. The biggest problem with, with my parenting is me. You can't use that against me. <laughs> my biggest problem in, in my life is my sinful desires. That's what I need to focus on. You've got to own it. If you don't own it, it will destroy you because you will never repent of and turn from and deal with what you don't ex admit exists. The problem is our own sinful desires. So we need to, to fight that sin by, by owning it, recognizing that it's in us. But then we fight against sin by understanding it. This be point 1B. Um, understand it. Understand it. Look at how verse 14 uh, continues. It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. This is the, the life cycle of sin. If you were to do a, a nature channel documentary special on sin, um, here it is. This is its progress. Um, First, we're lured and enticed by our own desires. Those are words that come out of, uh, out of hunting and fishing. Um, the prey is, is lured in. It's enticed. It's, it's promised something delicious. It's something beautiful sparkled in front of it. And it believes that it's pursuing something good. Until all of a sudden, the, the hook is set or the, the trap snaps closed. And you're caught. That's the danger of our sinful desires. They lure us. They, they entice us and they, they seduce us and enchant us. But the reality that, that we often miss, that we forget, is um, what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of this flesh which war against your soul. In your fight against sin... Um, you have got to understand that, that the desires in your flesh, the, the very things that you love and want are warring against you. That's, that's dangerous. That's terrifying. Um, my own heart is against me. It loves the things that will destroy me. And it wages war against my soul. And it does so deceptively. Um, we don't expect to see this easily, right? I mean, if, if the fish could spot the, the hook in the lure, he'd never be caught. If, if the coyote could see the snare hanging between him and the bait pile, he would never end up as somebody's jacket. It wouldn't happen, but, but that's the point of luring and baiting. It's deception. So sin begins with desire, luring, and enticing and deceiving us. And when desire and temptation are brought together, um, temptation is this opportunity from the outside and, and and desire, this inner longing for it, they come together, they conceive. And sin comes into embryonic form. Uh, like a child in the womb, it's not fully developed yet. 
um, but all parts are there. It's uh, on its way. And we begin to allow ourselves to make plans to fulfill our desire. You, you begin to, to cherish the idea of sin, to fondle it in your mind. You think about how it might go. And, and after a period of gestation, sometimes years in the making, sometimes just a split second, but then sin is birthed. It's acted on. It comes out into full being. If you're going to fight sin, you have to understand it. You have to see this, this life cycle of sin in your heart and how it progresses. Um, John MacArthur uh, is the king of alliteration, and so I will just steal from him. Uh, he puts this out in three Ds. Um, desire, deception, design, disobedience. Don't worry, I'm going to go through that slower um, for those of you trying to write it down furiously. So um, first we have desire. It's sin dwelling in us that makes us vulnerable. Uh, and and that, that then comes deception. We believe that it's good. We, we let the look linger. We flirt with the idea of, of getting even, of giving them a piece of my mind. We begin to justify it in our minds and allow ourselves to, to think longingly after sin. Then comes design. We plan and, and begin to think about how we would carry it out. We look for opportunities and make space for sin. No sin uh, ever comes about without some amount of planning in our own hearts. And once we have desired and been deceived and designed a plan, then we disobey. We walk into it. It happens. But listen, this is not an unstoppable train. In fact, this can be stopped at any point. Um, but the earlier in the process you cut this off, um, the easier it is to do. The earlier in the life cycle we attack it, the easier it is to deal with, right? It is, it is much easier to root out that first dandelion early in the spring than to spend the whole summer chasing down its legion of offspring. Um, think of a, a, a nice little cute bear cub living in your house, and, and he's so delightful at first and you don't mind having him around. Um, Hard as it may be, it's much easier to kill that little bear cub uh, than a full-grown raging bear who's decided to make you its meal. Um, we need to understand our sin. To, to watch yourself, to study your own habits, your own tendencies. Look for these steps. You know, this happens in my heart and mind, and then it goes to here, to here, to here. And you'll see that as you begin to watch for it. Look for these steps. Be, be incredibly suspicious on guard against sinful desires in your own heart. Again, they, they may seem innocent. They, they may seem just a long way off. It's just a, it's just a passing temptation, passing desire. I don't, I don't intend to act on it. We're just going to let it snuggle in here for a little while. It'd be overreacting. I mean, it would be kind of going too far to make a big deal out of this little desire. And before you know it, you've been deceived. And that desire begins to take root and grow stronger uh, until it meets opportunity. And you find yourself designing a plan and carrying it out to disobedience. Um, never meant to. You might even say, I have no idea how we got this far. I have no idea how it came to this. Look at this mess that, that I'm in. I have no idea how I got here. James will tell you. You were lured and enticed by your own desires and, 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 and they conceived and gave birth to sin. You need to learn to, to derail this process at whichever stage you find it at. Be aware. Be aware. Be suspect of your own desires. Make them obedient to Christ. Be on guard against being deceived by the seduction of this world. Don't, don't believe it. Don't, don't buy into the lie that these things are good. 
Don't make plans to sin. Be actively making plans not to sin. Don't, don't go to those places that tempt you. Don't, don't turn on the computer in the evening. Throw away the computer if you have to. And then repent of disobedience. Stop. Stop right in the middle of it. Repent and walk away. Don't, don't buy into the lie that, well, I've, I've opened my mouth and begun to talk now. I may as well finish. No. Shut your mouth and walk away. Stop in the middle. Repent. And then he gives us one side of our motivation to do that. Why should we fight against sin? Why should we be so, so diligent and harsh against these desires in us and this deception that grows? Because sin, when it's fully grown, brings death. Allowed to grow and mature, if it takes root, it, it completes its work and it produces death. And so in many ways, we have the opposite of what he said in in verses 2 and 3. Passing the test produces steadfastness, and steadfastness is it grows, it it produces maturity and and completion in us, perfection, lacking in nothing. But failing the test produces sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, produces death, emptiness, complete and utter loss. This is the fight against sin. It's so necessary. Because the fallout of sin is is death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. It brings destruction, chaos, pain, suffering into our lives. Uh, It leads to physical death. But but more than that, underneath all of that uh, is spiritual death. It's, It's death to our relationship with God. It's eternal death as we find ourselves under God's righteous judgment for our sin. It looks so good. On the outside, it it offers this temporary relief that offers immediate satisfaction. Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, and in the end, its way is death. So we need to fight sin. But that's only half the battle. The fact that sin produces death is only one side of our motivation. And so we need to fight against sin by by owning it and by understanding it. And and we we need to step up and and do battle here. But then uh, we also need to feast on the Savior. We are lured and enticed by our desire for sin. And it's one thing to fight against those desires, to say, i got to do better. I need to keep from engaging in sin because it's bad. It's not good for me, and I see the damage that it causes. But, But that's not enough. Um, Behavioral science tells us um, that you have a limited amount of self-control. It's a limited resource. You can only say no to yourself for so long until you get exhausted. I often tell guys who are fighting with lust or addiction that it's like trying to dig a hole uh, in the beach down by the water in the sand. And you can spend all your time trying to move the sand out and hold the sand back and keep it at bay, but you will exhaust yourself. What you need to do is fill that hole with something. Feed those desires with what will actually satisfy. And so let's look at verses 16 to 18. Here's where James lays this out. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 
Don't just fight against sin, but feast on the Savior. Run from sin and to God. Uh, Verse 16 has two purposes in it. It verifies, again, that God does not tempt people to sin because God is the giver of good gifts. Even in bringing trials and tests, he brings them for good purposes in our lives. But it also contrasts God against sin. Our deceitful desires lure us and entice us, and it's a trap. It's a bait and switch. It looks good. It promises life, and then it brings death. So don't be deceived. Don't fall for it. Don't buy into that. Sin will not give you those good and perfect gifts. Good and perfect gifts come from God. He's the giver of what we so long for and desire. If you're looking for joy and wholeness and life, don't be deceived by the offer of sin. It's found in God. The Father of lights who does not change who does not promise and then fail to deliver, who never baits and switches. It speaks of God's perfect goodness. Um, 1 John 1.5 uses similar language. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Um, the, the, the language here of God um, having no shadow of change. Um, he, he's using astrological terms here. And, and it's, I, I think his his. References the, the sun and the moon and the planets. They, they all go through their cycles of, of sometimes closer, sometimes further, sometimes brighter, sometimes dimmer. Um, we have partial eclipses and, and total eclipses, not with God. God is faithful. He is more dependable and trustworthy than the sun in the sky. He is good all the time. And so don't be deceived. But by this supposed goodness of sin, the lie that it holds out, though it looks so tempting, look to the goodness of God. And don't just say no to your desires. Turn your desires to where they'll be satisfied. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. What a glorious promise. He will not deceive you. He is what our hearts truly need. Um, He promises all good things and he delivers on that promise. So we fight against sin by by feasting on him, refocusing on what is truly good and what truly satisfies because that's what we were created for. That's how we were designed. God made us, he designed us to find our joy in our life in him. And so it's like putting gasoline into a diesel engine. It's not going to work. You're going to blow the thing up. We weren't created to run on sin. We were created to thrive on, on a relationship with God. And as long as you're neglecting God, as long as you're holding God at arm's length, you're not going to have true life. You're not going to have the fullness of life and joy that he offers. You're not experiencing life as you were created to. You're pouring more gasoline into that diesel engine and it won't work. And yet that's where we all once lived, right? That's, that's our story. We've all been there. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, um, all of humanity fell into that pit. Every one of us. Sin, uh, like a genetic disease, trickled down through the generations. And any one of us that can say, yes, I have Adam as a great-great-granddaddy, hint, that's all of us, um, say, I inherited that sinful nature. 
I was born deceived by sin and enslaved to it, and therefore spiritually dead in it, running on sin rather than God. And Jesus came to rescue us from that, to ransom us out from this slavery to it, to give us a new life, a spiritual life. Verse 18, uh, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of all his creatures. This is what God does in the hearts of those whom he saves. By his own will, he brought us forth. This is God's doing. Um, The the word translated by his own will is strategically moved by James to the the front of that sentence, making emphasis of it. Um, This is not your thing. This is God's thing. This is one of God's good gifts. 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Remember, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You you were born enslaved to sin. This isn't a call for you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. This isn't a call for you to to work harder and and do better and, and, and get up. This is a call to trust in the one who raises the dead, to trust in the one who gives life out of death. And where sin brought death, um, then uh, James says that he brought us forth. And and literally that could be translated, he gave us birth. Where sin brought death, God brings new life. How does he do it? By the word of truth. He brought us forth by the word of truth. It's it's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. That God himself came to earth in human flesh, took upon himself the guilt uh, of our sin, and on that cross he died bearing the wrath of God that we deserved. He was cut off from God, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you treated me like a wretched, guilty sinner? so that we might stand reconciled to God, so that we might call him Father, that we would be adopted into his family, that we might be treated uh, as if we had never sinned at all because Christ paid the penalty. And so it's the word of truth. It's that message of good news that God uses to bring forth this new birth, this new life. Faith comes by hearing, as Paul says. So by his will, he gave us new birth through the gospel. Why? There's a little word there that is so easily overlooked. Never underestimate the word that. I I wish translators would at least go with so that. It would just kind of double our chances of seeing it, not overlooking it. He gave us new birth by the word of truth for this reason, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, to understand this idea of first fruits, you have to understand the kind of the Old Testament reference here. Uh, The first fruits were a sacrifice that Israel was called uh, to give to God. The the first fruits of all their fields, of all their livestock, of all their vineyards uh, went to God. And so uh, if you had a lamb or an ox or a cow, um, the first time that it gave birth, the first of its offspring, um, you would take it to the temple and sacrifice it to God. When your harvest came in at the end of the, of the year and you brought in all of your crops, you would take the first and the best of that harvest and bring it to the temple and sacrifice it to God. 
Every year as the grapes came off the vine and were crushed and carefully stored and fermented, uh, when it was ready, it was the first and best of that new wine that would go to the temple as a sacrifice for God. And this is part of Israel's worship to the Lord every single year, a way of recognizing that every good thing comes from you, God, that you own it all. Uh, but notice how James just kind of tweaks this and he, as he uses it as a metaphor for us. Um, it's not that we are to give God a portion of what we have, even the, even the first and best of what we have. Now look more carefully. He says, rather, you, you whom he has saved, you whom he has given this new birth by the gospel, you are the first fruits. You're taken out from this world, out from the, the field that is the human race, and you are made that offering to him. And so we are to be 100% set apart to him. Our lives, our very selves, sacrificed to God as an act of worship. The first fruits were not used for common things. The, the firstborn ox was not taken out and hooked up to the plow. The, the first grain from the field wasn't, wasn't pounded to wheat and, and made into bread. It was set aside to the Lord, and so are we. Not part of our life. Not 10% of your income, not Sunday mornings, not just some visible exterior part, all of you. And so 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Jesus Christ died to ransom you, to purchase you, and now you're his. This is how we feast on him. This is how we, we fill ourselves on him. It's a life sacrifice to God, running after him. Don't, don't give yourself to sin. Don't let it lure you. You're no longer dead in sin. You have this new life, a life sacrificed and given to God. So obey him. And, and to obey him is to love him, and to love him is to obey him. Look at John 15, verses 10 and 11. He says, Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. The creator of life, the creator of your life said, if you want to have full joy, here's how you do it. Abide in me. Okay, how do I abide in you? What does that mean? Walk in my commandments. Keep my commandments. Obey me and you'll have joy. Walk with me. Abide in Christ. And, and that's where we find fullness and true life in him as we live as holy sacrifices. Live our lives completely given to him. Don't be deceived, church. Don't, don't put your sin off. Don't, don't push it aside as if it doesn't matter, as if it's not your fault. It's yours. Own it. Understand it. See this battle at work and fight against it, but don't just be fighting the negative battle. Feast on God. Set your heart on him. Walk in, in obedience to him. Delight yourself in him. He is what our souls need. He is the one uh, who gives us the joy and life and hope that we so desperately desire and need. Would you pray with me?